This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, With Malice of Forethought, The Execution of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, and the author is Theodore W. Grippo, and we welcome Ted to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ted. Yes, I'm here. Well, great to have you with us. Let me read a couple of things you've written about this trial of a century, as it's called. It's also called The Case That Will Not Die. So here's Correct. what you, in just summary fashion, uh, for everyone's information, with malice aforethought, tells the story of two Italian immigrant workers who many believe were wrongfully convicted and executed for murder during the America's 1920 Red Scare hysteria against anarchists. It illuminates today's issues of immigration, terrorism, and war. Well, give us a little about your background, Ted, and and kind of a, a little summary at first of this robbery, this murder scene, and why Nicola and Bartolomeo were charged? Well, uh, I'll start with my background. I'm a retired lawyer at this time. I spent 50 years in law enforcement and private practice. And uh, as I got closer to retirement, about, uh, oh, about four years ago, four or five years ago, I uh, continued an intense uh, investigation, research into the case. I had started a few years earlier while I was still practicing law, but uh, when I hit retirement, I really put myself into it completely on a on a day, almost a daily basis. And I got into this because, I'll tell you, it's an interesting point, I think, is that when I was 10 years old, uh, I had heard the names Sacco and Vansetti. I don't know exactly where, but I believe it was on the radio uh, commemorating their, the 10th anniversary of their executions. And I asked my father about it, and he gave me a very, very emotional response and indicated that these fellows were convicted of uh, of uh, robbery and murder, and they were executed, but many, many people believed they were innocent and that, were, that they were framed. And that sort of stayed with me all the years. And uh, as I had an opportunity, as I began to slow down in my practice and so on, I began looking into it, and then I... I wrote the book. So that's my background. As far as the two uh, immigrants are concerned, they were anarchists. There's no question about it. But you've got to understand that that there were things called philosophical anarchists versus, you know, violent people, as there are in all movements. The anarchist movement was just the offshoot of socialism. It's all it is. And it seeks to say that 
no central governmental authority should run the lives of our of people, that they should be free uh, and uh, all the workers of the world should get together and run everything. I mean, you've heard this before. It's the, it's the socialist theme. And they, yeah, workers they, unite, right? Yes, exactly. And they, that's what they were all about. Uh, there's no evidence that they were ever, ever involved in any kind of violent action other than the claim that they committed these murders. Now, I have to tell you that in reading the book, you'll be convinced, I'm sure, that the evidence, except for one piece of evidence, was very, very light about these fellows. They didn't, you know, but they were charged, and they were charged with the murder because they had gone to pick up a car uh, that they were going to use to distribute uh, the socialist literature. And the police believed they were part of this of a gang that had committed the, the robbery and murder in South Braintree, a payroll robbery and, and that resulted in the murder of the guard and the paymaster. And uh, they had very little evidence against them, but they were the ones that they charged because they were involved in the anarchist movement there in, in the Boston area. And the trial went on, and there were so many miscarriages of justice. I mean, you have Justice Frankfurter. I, I don't know if you're familiar with He was a Supreme Court of the United States judge. He was a, a Harvard professor at the time, and he tried to help these people, as did many, uh, many, many people in the area. But the the Red Scare was so powerful, it overwhelmed the situation, and these two fellows were uh, convicted in a very, very shabby trial that has been criticized historically by virtually every legal expert that has reviewed it. My contribution, hopefully, is that I found two pieces of evidence that really, in my judgment, with everything else that went on, really clearly indicates that they were framed. And we can talk about that later, but sure. is, is, have I given you enough? Oh, very good, time? yes. And, and Vanzetti's last words to William Thompson, his uh, appellate lawyer, you say still echo in your mind, clear my name. Absolutely. That motivated me. I tell you, uh, when you... Get involved in writing a book about people. Sometimes you really get to know them. And I, I feel like I've gotten to know them, and uh, the, my instincts were very powerful to help these men. Yes, I tried to clear their name, and that's really what the book is about, an attempt to clear their names. And it's amazing, the uh, obviously, the, the news interest at the time. It captivated uh, much of America with the you know, like over 100,000 viewed the bodies. Oh, it more than captivated America. It captivated a lot of the world. Almost every major capital in the world, from England to France, Germany, Italy, uh, Russia, uh, South America, they all erupted 
in terrible, uh, terrible conflicts. I mean, they erupted with uh, with uh, marches, and uh, they burned American flags. They overturned cars. The the American embassies in those countries were stoned the night of their executions. They, this case grabbed a great part of the world. It grabbed them very powerfully because it was so strongly felt that they were being executed for their political beliefs and possibly because of their Italian ethnicity. Their, and that was, a, obviously, back in the 20s, Italians were... Oh, well, yeah. you know, the mafia and oh, it was, all the, it, it was, the yeah. focus on them. It was very strong. It was very strong at that time, and the book does indicate that, and it it provides a lot of information. Now, you got to understand that the American public, in fairness, was frightened by right. terrible uh, bombings that were going on in our country. I mean, you see how we feel today. You know what goes on today with uh, uh, 9/11 and how um, how we all feel very concerned and we're very vulnerable. Very, very vulnerable. That was going on in 1919 and 1920. The anarchists and elements of uh, of uh, communism were rampant in our country. Bombings were occurring. They had uh, they they, they had uh, mail bombs were sent to 30 of our leading citizens. Uh, from Supreme Court justices to governors and senators uh, threatening them and so on. It was a very tumultuous time. But the problem was that the reaction of the government was overly severe. It was overly severe. And it really was indiscriminate. And it caught up a lot of honest people who, uh, immigrants who were not of that uh, doing those kind of things, and these fellows got caught up in that. Let's get into your, uh, I guess, your evidence that you've come across and, and your theory and what you call the Sacco switch gun theory. Yes, uh, uh, this is a bit complicated, and I don't want to try to give you all the weeds. I don't want to try to get into right. the weeds on this because <laughs> you and and the audience will fall asleep. But no, the chapter 16 entitled The Rosetta Stone, uh, it's the second to last chapter of the book. It really outlines this in detail, but let me give you the brief summary, if I may. Judge Thayer was the presiding judge. He issued a decision on March 25, 1924, that he had entered into a so-called contempt investigation into who switched the barrel to Sacco's gun while it was in safekeeping in an evidence locker. He indicated that his, that his investigation was not part of the Sacco-Vanzetti case. It was his personal investigation for contempt. What had happened is... They found that the barrel to Sacco's gun had been switched when it was supposed to be in safekeeping in, in, in an evidence locker. Now, in my research, I discovered six docket entries relating to that March 25 decision, indicating that it was part of the Sacco-Vancetti case and that it was appealed to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. However... The documents described in those docket entries are not 
anywhere mentioned and cannot be found in the official record of the case. Someone eliminated all those, docu- do- all those documents from the record but failed to eliminate the docket entries. My belief is that, that the docket entries were prepared by people different than the ones that were putting together the, the documents in the record. Now, I have all of that in a in six-bound volume, so I want you to understand that. So I couldn't find it, but yet, look what, what happened right. now. With the, I went to the Commonwealth's archivist, and with, the, with her help, we discovered a handwritten order of Judge Thayer dated March 27th, just two days after the March 25th decision. And in that order, he granted Sacco's motion regarding the appeal to the Supreme Judicial Court, a complete contradiction of the March 25 decision. Now, that really is of critical importance. What apparently happened here is that the decision was written one way, and then it was eliminated from the record like it never existed. And I found this order that proves that it did exist. Mm. So something goes on there. Now, I did my further investigation, and what it showed me is that the decision was a ruse to cover up a conspiracy to counterfeit the bullet that killed the guard in order to connect that bullet to Sacco's gun and convict him of murder. And that was the most critical evidence that they had that Sacco was involved. Now, Vansetti, there was virtually no evidence, but he was Sacco's sidekick. They were indicted together, and he was just dragged along. In fact, some of the most ardent, ardent uh, advocates of the guilt of these people admitted that Vansetti probably didn't do it, even though they thought Sacco did it, based on some of this evidence. So that's what, what, what I found, and I really would encourage people to take a look if they can at that chapter, because it, uh, it goes into detail exactly how this happened and why it happened. But I hope that gives you a brief overview yes. of it. Yes, well, you carefully reviewed 6,000 pages of the oh, transcript yeah. of the and, record. And more than that. That's more incredible. That's right. Oh, yes, the 6,000 pages I have uh, bound, they're all bound volumes of, uh, of books. I mean, I have them here. I bought them uh, over the Internet when I started my research. Interesting, you might want to know something about those six volumes. Uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, had a, uh, a, a company in, in Colorado, a mining company, and there was a big strike. Now, the strikers were mostly immigrants, mostly Italian immigrants. And uh, as a result of that strike, they were thrown out of the company town. They used to have to live in the company town in those days. That was what they did. And they had to live out in tents then during the strike. And an eruption broke out between the strikers and Rockefeller's guards. 
in a machine gun, the tent colony, and then they burned it down, burned all the tents. It was awful. Mm. It was called the Ludlow Massacre. It's a matter of important history Mm -hmm. in America. Eleven children were killed, several women and adults. Altogether, I think it was 15 people were killed in that Ludlow Massacre. He was so guilty about that that when the Sacco Vansetti case concluded... He front-ended the cost of preparing six volumes of the record in in book form, six books. And he had them placed, I understand, in every library in the country. Hmm. And I got my book from the uh, library in Oregon through the Amazon.com. I I just thought that's an interesting aside of how powerful this case was, that it would have affected somebody like uh, John D. Rockefeller to do that. Well, it's called The Trial of the Century. It's also called The Case That Will Never Die, or The Case That Will Not Die. Yes. And so we appreciate you joining us, Ted, to share uh, a few of the inside information about your book with Malice Aforethought, The Execution of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. Tell us how to get your book, Ted. Well, you can get it over the, uh, you can get it from iUniverse directly, uh, and uh, also you can get it on Amazon.com and at Barnes & Noble and other book dealers. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the interview. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. And sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. 
Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Almost, and the author is Stephen Michael Merrick. And Stephen joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Good day. Well, great to have you with us. This thriller, murder, mystery. You say this about it. Almost is a tale of greed, murder, and sexual obsession when members of a wealthy Southern family draw an innocent business executive into their deceptive trap as one of them attempts to escape with millions in blood money. Well, that's all we have to say. That sums it up, doesn't it? it. (laughs) I'll buy it. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a murder mystery thriller. There's no doubt. Now, tell us what motivated this plot, this theme. Well, you know, I I grew up in the healthcare industry with with a couple of parents that worked in it, and uh, I was kind of the... uh, Captive labor as a young young guy, so I, I grew up in that and, and ended up taking care of uh, my elderly parents. And this whole theme of, of acquisitions and you know individuals such as Tag Grayson uh, going down to uh, purchase a healthcare um, entity, and and then you know the business exec on the road. And what I did is overlaid a lot of what ifs. Well, what if a very good looking young lady were to take advantage of a situation, you fuel it with some alcohol and some bad decisions, and you can end up with a pretty interesting tale. And so over the years, um, I had been toying with uh, that kind of scenario, and I left an employer, and my wife was kind enough to point me in the direction of my computer and said, you've been talking about it for a long time. Why don't you sit down and write it? And I took a little over a month to write it, uh, 10 years to develop it, and a little over uh, 37 days to put it into uh, its current form. It's set in a South Carolina coastal town. You call it a beautiful coastal town. Buford's gorgeous, and and I grew up in Michigan, spent a lot of time in in Ann Arbor, Um, so a lot of the places and scenes uh, are listed from my my experiences. Uh, I I, I really do recall one time where a friend of mine bought a boat up in Annapolis, Maryland, and we took a a, a couple of week journey down the intercoastal and uh, ended up in Buford, where um, the boat is docked uh, during the course of the events uh, that take place. So I really did reach back into uh, my history and my memory and tried to meld a little bit of the the, the South with the North in a different set of struggles, um, which ended up in the, in the conflict that uh, really kind of uh, was the backdrop for the book almost. So you really pushed the envelope on the, I guess, the darker side of the human character? I tried to, and a little bit of, you know, uh, some of that came from my own family's dysfunction when my parents passed. We went through a variety of turmoils internally, and uh, while I didn't realize what was 
happening in the book as I was writing as I looked back on it from my personal experiences. Um, not that we killed anybody in my family, but, but uh, you know, some of the, the craziness that goes into family dysfunction kind of bled out onto the pages as we went through this whole thing. So uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to write, and, uh, you know, oddly enough, in the beginning and uh, how it ended up, weren't the same, I think it ended up better um, as the characters developed themselves. So, yeah, there's a lot of me in this book. And we're talking about areas of people's lives when they become desperate. Yeah, yeah, greed, um, sex, uh, like I said a little while ago, fueled by alcohol, poor decisions, family dysfunction. Um, it's kind of that all-American story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Uh, <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's too much truth there. Uh, let's talk about this Midwest business executive. You call him high-flying. His name is Tag Grayson. Great name, Tag Grayson. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, Tag kind of came out of my experiences in the healthcare. You know, I, I was in human resource management for many, many, many years and, and uh, was involved with some of those high-flying business types that would uh, blow into town, take a look at the bricks and mortar of, uh, you know, a business entity and, and then move on down the road. And, you know, you, you couple that with um, the, the common work in Joe. You know, when, when these high-flyers, these business executives go into something, um, they're kind of looked at with a little bit of awe from, you know, from the individuals who are working in those uh, settings. And so I took advantage of an individual with all, all of that clout and all of those, uh, you know, seductive features, if you will, and uh, kind of tied them all up into Tag Grayson and his assistant and in the company that they formulated out of University of Michigan. Um, him and a couple of pals built this, this organization that acquired and sold healthcare hospitals, hospice, nursing homes. And uh, Nate Dylan Quest, a southern gentleman, wanted to, to sell his family's entities. You know, the economy takes a tumble. They lose lots of cash in the process. The only thing that's keeping Nate afloat is the family uh, business, the healthcare business, and he wants to sell it. Uh, but he doesn't want to sell it to his southern buddies. He wants to sell it to a northern interest. Um, and that's how they kind of hook up with a mutual friend uh, that had done some drilling for the Dylan Quest family. Uh, also did some business with the uh, the group uh, that Grayson represents. And that's how they kind of melded together. And then it, it goes off on its own tangential uh, um, areas of interest as they move down to their business dealings. And of course, part of uh, Tad Grayson's thrill in the business world is closing the big deal. This is uh, this means everything. Yeah, he, um, you know, and, and like I said, these are folks that I knew in in my history in the healthcare uh, acquisition mode, where you know the deal is the chase, and, and closing the deal um, is the biggest thing in a lot of people's lives. You know, to get the best deal and go out there and and kind of rub elbows with like-minded individuals who want to sell, putting the deal together, making that whole uh, scenario come to fruition. And that's the thing that drives TAG uh, deeper and deeper into the plot that thickens and twists and turns as, as they go through this business uh, operation that they've got going on. So Tad, smel T -T 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 -T. he smells blood, doesn't he? He smells money. 
Yep. Um, and he sees he sees this desperate situation, but he doesn't realize what it's getting him into. No, he he really doesn't. He's kind of like the uh, the sheep that's led to the slaughterhouse. Unbeknownst to him, there was a lot of moving parts behind the scene. Um, and before he realizes what's taken place, he's in up to his neck, can't get out of the mess. Um, his family life is kind of on the rocks back in Michigan, and so he's kind of torn between two lives. He's got the family back in Michigan. He's got an interest uh, in some parties down in Beaufort that keep pulling him back through the, some blackmail and, and some other unsavory circumstances that kind of keeps Tag uh, toes in the water, if you will, and he just can't seem to get away from the whole thing. The way you pull us into the story right from the beginning, it's very compelling. Uh, you know, here's the man getting up early in the morning, and he sees his wife asleep, and he's thinking, talking to himself about how rotten a guy he is, I guess. He's feeling his guilt. Yeah, uh, you know, that human nature thing is pulling at his heartstrings, and he's devoted a lot of time and energy to uh, his family with his kids and being the all-American dad and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And he's, he's kind of thrust into a set of circumstances that really pique, you know, the, the primal instincts uh, in Tag Grayson, you know, the, the younger woman with the lots of cash and all that kind of stuff. So he's really torn between, you know, the, the day-to-day drive that, that put him where he is and the illusion of what he could have in the future. So it, it's a, you know, and one of the things that, that I've always found interesting is that you know, men being what men are, I think anybody could see themselves in that situation. Um, not that we were ever there, but, you know, you could just, if you apply the what-if scenario, you know, what if this took place and what if that took place, and, and what I ended up doing is taking that what-if and extrapolating that into, uh, you know, into the novel that we wrote here in Almost. And as you put it, pointing out that men, it seems, are the weaker gender. <laughs> You know, I'm a man. I, I uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of strength to uh, stick to your convictions, and, and when you overlay things with alcohol and bad judgment, you know, it's just kind of perfect for a novel. And the, uh, you know, we, in business, you want to have trust. Obviously, there has to be that component for the for the best for each party. But in this high flyer thriller uh trust is doesn't even it's not even in the game is it no there's a lot of self-interested parties in here uh everybody's kind of looking out for their own best interests and uh there's a few people to get damaged along the way but you know that's just collateral damage as they say in the war business yeah it's just business don't take it personal right <laughs> don't take it personal yeah it's just my own survival you just right. have to get in the way <laughs> right and, and you also point out families are often their own worst enemies you know, it, it's really, it's really a true statement. Um, when I was taking care of my ailing mother, who passed away, and my dad passed away, um, I've got a couple of brothers, and we still don't speak, oddly enough. But it was, it was a, uh, it was a function of that family dysfunction, 
And um, that's one of the things that kind of pops up into this is that, you know, it's all hands on deck and my boat's the only one that's going to float. And it's amazing what takes place when you put that kind of, uh, you know, family dynamic into play. And I, and I think I've done a pretty good job uh, of taking that dynamic and extrapolating it out as, as far as I could rationally extrapolate out a problem dysfunctional family. And of course, with millions of baby boomers going to face this uh, elderly situation, those senior years that may end up in uh, these kinds of healthcare facilities, you put it, you know, readers will realize that this could happen to anyone. It really can, and it, you know, the more I talk with people about how things happen in their families when, when mom and dad get a little older, and uh, you know, the family has to kind of pull together, it's uh, very difficult for groups of individuals to kind of pull together to, for the benefit of a third party, not necessarily their own party. And one of the things that really is kind of an offshoot of this is I feel compelled to write my own memoir. Uh, to help people who are kind of in the same set of circumstances that I am personally with family and all of the turmoil that, that has taken place because of the aging of the parents. And uh, there's a lot of hidden rocks uh, underneath the surface of the water that you can land your boat on that could be otherwise avoided if, you know, people would communicate more and do that kind of stuff. So I, I briefly touch on it in almost, uh, well, more than briefly, you know, it, it's a, it's pretty much is some of a center post of the story. Um, but I, like I said earlier, I feel kind of compelled to write my version of my personal events um, in an explanation of because of my background, my health care, long-term care background, you know, and one of the reasons I'm the baby of my family and my mom wanted me to be the, you know, the primary individual making decisions was because of that health care background. But it really, uh, it really kind of flew in the face of other family members. And um, it's, it's an interesting thing that people are having to go through. Like, like you said, millions and millions of us are in that position to take care of our elderly uh, parents. And it can really cause a lot of strife within the family. Things are not always what you think they are. <laughs> They're never what you <laughs> yes. think they are. <laughs> now, what about the title? How did you come up with that? And, uh, of course, this is radio. We can't show people the cover, but the cover kind of draws you in with the whole uh, mystique about the word almost and then that cover setting. Yeah, the cover setting, I, I really am happy with how the cover of the book turned out. Um, it's it, it's a marina-type setting with that um, grayish, kind of brownish sun setting in the background uh, and almost dances across the horizon. And it's I, I think the, the the reason that the title came in as almost is it's not quite ever what you think it is. It's almost there, and I wanted to kind of portray that in the uh, in the book that it's almost what you might think it is, but not quite. And uh, it just kind of naturally evolved out of uh, um, just the storyline itself it is almost, but not quite. I feel a sequel coming on. You know, it's amazing you should say that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I am working on a sequel uh, to this. Um, the storyline sets itself up perfectly, and I couldn't help myself but walk through that door. <laughs> Well, the title of the book, as we have said many times, is Almost, and the author is Stephen Michael Merrick.
Stephen, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, geez, it's online at Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon.com, iUniverse Bookstore. And uh, if anyone is interested in going on to uh, the Almost page, it's at almost.authorsexpress, A-U-T-H-O-R-S-X. P-R-E-S-S dot com. And uh, from there, I, um, I'm starting a blog, and uh, you can purchase the book from there. You can read about me. You can, I've got a picture up, cover of the book almost, and uh, some of the goals that I have set for myself, which include the memoir and, and some other things that I've been working on. And, and uh, so uh, almost.authorsexpress.com will get you there. Well, maybe the right person will read it, and we'll see it in the big screen. We're on the well, big screen. Well, that's what we're hoping for. You know, <laughs> we all have those uh, right. huge aspirations in life, and uh, nothing wrong with the movie deal in the works either. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephen. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. Anytime. And one additional recognition for Stephen Merrick's book, Almost. It's received the Editor's Choice Award. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The New Millennium Christian Health Program. How to get started immediately on the path to improved health and greater happiness. And the author is Reverend Thomas Kaut. And Tom joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tom. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're 
interested in better health and you have God's way from your point of view, from your studying, from your research, and also from your practice, you say this, the New Millennium Christian Health Program is to encourage the faithful to focus on their everyday health in conjunction with their spiritual life. You've investigated information that you could find to increase your knowledge of good health, and you applied it, this life-saving knowledge, to your own life and used it to develop a personal health program. So you are doing this according to God's laws and what God expects of us. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Christian Health Program is where, is where you build the foundation for your health based on life principles. And these life principles come uh, from our Lord. And, and uh, the, title, the title represents, Christian represents the kingdom of God, and health represents life, and program represents what you practice. Why did you feel motivated to follow this course, the, to publish this book? Well, I, I felt motivated because uh, early on uh, I was seeking to learn more about uh, our Lord in, in, in respect to man. Uh, you know, in, in this world, there's, there's really only two things, and it's, it's between man and God. And and uh, I wanted to know what what God had to do with with my life and and how my life would develop. So I started to investigate, and when I investigated uh, God's health program, my health improved dramatically, and it it was so good that I didn't want to go back to the previous to previous programs. And and the beauty part of it, Steve, is the fact that when you when you apply God's health program, there is no side effects. In other words, all the all the life principles that God gives to man, there's absolutely no side effects. And regardless of of, of the condition of your health, you cannot harm yourself by practicing uh, our Lord's program. Your very first chapter, I find interesting, it asks an interesting question. Is now a good time to challenge tradition? Yes, yes. You see, depending, uh, everybody is unique. You know, our Lord, our Lord created man as a living soul, and everyone is unique. Now, if we compare that to a cell phone, okay, every cell phone in the world is unique. That number, no one else has. You're, you're the only one uh, that has that cell phone, and anybody in the world that calls that number, it goes to you, and you only. So your health, your health is unique, and it's yours. Whatever health program you follow, that's, that's your program. And if you want to develop greater health, you need to change your program. And you follow a program that's going to bring that to you. And, and the Christian health program is, is where, is where you, you apply our Lord's uh, life principles. And the more you apply our Lord's life principles, the greater your health becomes. In other words, you receive your own reward. 
Another chapter says, its title is, In the Beginning, There Was Good Health. Yes. Okay. In the very beginning, there was no sickness. Uh, when, When you go back in Scripture, and when God created man, God did not create man to be sick. God created man to be healthy. And no one knows man better than God. That's what that chapter is all about. And, of course, we have to take a look at food, a uh, major factor in any health program, but you're going to help us see it through God's point of view. Yes. Okay. Uh, there's so much variety in food, and, and, and some people are allergic to this or allergic to that. But the key to it is, Steve, the key to it is when you develop a good health program, you also build your immune system. And and let's say let's say for example, uh, you eat some food that's that's a little contaminated. When you have a healthy immune system, it'll override that. In other words, it won't affect you anywhere as near as bad as if your immune system is low. So uh, when when you look at food and, and you read your body, your body will tell you. Your body will tell you whether that food is good or, or not good for you. And you can feel the you can feel the difference, that's oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. In other words, let's say for example, the average the average food that you ingest, uh, the effects will be in your body for 24 to 48 hours, okay? Now, let's say you ate some bad food yesterday. If you feel poorly today, okay, you make a note of it. And and let's say next week you eat the same type of food and, and the following day you feel bad. Okay, your body is telling you, your own body is telling you, whoa, that food is not good for me. So your body, your body is your best friend or your best ally because your body, your body has a voice. And your body will tell you whether you're practicing good procedures or bad procedures. So you have to listen to your body. And when you listen to your body, your health will improve dramatically. I think every one of us understands the essential need for water. Uh, You raised some questions, though, about refrigerated water and ice. Yes. Okay. When God created man, uh, nobody could create man uh, better than what God did. Okay, we don't we don't consciously digest food. Our body digests the food, but when our Lord developed the stomach, the stomach works on temperature. If you have a an oven, and you're trying to bake a cake, and the oven isn't warm enough, that cake won't bake. (laughs) So let's say, for example, Steve, that uh, everybody knows uh, what grease is. Okay, if you take uh, grease in in a frying pan and, and you let it cool down to room temperature, that grease becomes a solid. But when you warm it up, it becomes a liquid. Okay, now, just picture your stomach trying to digest that food. 
if, if the grease is a solid, it's harder for the stomach to digest it. But if, if the grease is a liquid, it, it's much easier for the stomach to not only digest it, but to assimilate it. Okay, so when I talk about water and refrigeration, if you're constantly drinking cold water, you're freezing your stomach and, and you're, you're, you're preventing it from doing the job that it was designed to do. And, and that can materially uh, damage your health. What is the holistic loop? Okay, the holistic loop is, is, where, is where you invite uh, our Lord into your, into your conversation. In other words, if, if we have a board meeting, okay, we want the chairman of the board to be our Lord because he overrides, he overrides the, the, the conference. And the holistic loop is where you put God first, not last. Uh, and in, in every situation, in every situation, you want to know what God thinks about that situation. And when you know, when you know what God thinks about it, then you can react accordingly. And you also talk about the difference between the spirit body and the physical body. Yes, because God created, God created two bodies. He created the flesh body and he created the spirit body. But God is spirit, and, and God deals with man in spirit. And when you ignore your spirit body, uh, you're also uh, ignoring your physical body. Now, let me put that into perspective. Your spirit body really is your primary body. And, and how do we know this? If you were to take jet lag as a parable, when you go through time zones... Uh, you don't feel as good, okay? And the reason for it is your your, your spirit body works on, on, on a psychic clock. In other words, if you get up at 8 o'clock every morning or 6 o'clock every morning, your body starts to respond to that, and, and whether you had an alarm clock or not, you'll wake up at 6 o'clock, okay? When you go through time zones, now your physical body is a little messed up. Because your spirit body has said, uh, we, sh we should have had food at this time or, or, or that time or, or whatever. So uh, your spirit body is, is the loop between you and, and, and God. In other words, if we went back to the cell phone, the parable of the cell phone, God speaks to, to man in the spirit body. That's where God comes to man. God comes to man in the spirit. And uh, once you realize that, once you realize that your spirit body is, a, is the primary body and, and, and it controls, it controls uh, the physical body uh, outside, of, outside of your willing to control the physical body. But like when you sleep at night and everything else, I mean, your body is working off of your psychic body. Does that does that clear up? Yes. The holistic loop. Yes. And what about the buildup of poisons in the body? Okay. Uh, the buildup of, of poisons represent how fast can you eliminate the poisons. In other words, uh, 
know, when you when you ingest poisons, in order to prevent the poison from damaging your body, you have to get that poison out as quick as possible. Now, like for example, remember when they would teach you if a snake bit you or something like that, a poisonous snake would bite you. The first thing the first thing you would have to do is is take a knife and 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 open up open it up a little bit and suck the poison out because once you let that poison circulate throughout your whole body it does tremendous damage but if the poison is only localized i mean the damage is minimal okay so when when you ingest poisons remember now that poison is being circulated throughout the whole body and and uh it, it it's imper- it, it's imperative that uh to, to eliminate poison as soon as possible. So elimination is, is a tremendous tool to, to uh, get rid of poisons. But in order to eliminate the poison, you have to stop taking it in. And, and, and what the chapter is, is trying to bring to you is that recognize what, what poison is to your body. Now, when, when you talk about allergies, okay, some people can eat peanuts, and some people take convulsions eating peanuts. So peanuts are good for some people and bad for other people. But your body will tell you that. So when you recognize when you recognize poisons for your body, then it's time for you to eliminate ingesting the poison. In other words, you have to recognize the poison and then stop taking it in. We've got time for another comment on another chapter. Uh, I find this one very interesting. Let's safeguard and protect our blood of life. Well, again, the blood of life depends on, uh, on your relationship with God. God is life, and without God, we don't have life. I, I know that comes as a surprise to some people. But see, God is life, and and. Uh, when you protect, when you protect what God gives to you, because everything God has given to man has been freely given to man. You know, God does not charge man a penny, <laughs> and 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 what God gives to you, there's no side effects. So, when you practice God's life principles, there are no side effects, and you immediately increase the the, the, uh, the value of, of your health. And and when, when you live a healthy life, you, you also have a joyful life. In other words, your body is healthful, and, and, and it's a joy to live in, 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 in your body. Versus if you're sick, no one wants to live in, in a sick body. The title of the book, The New Millennium Christian Health Program. How to get started immediately on the path to improved health and greater happiness. The author is Reverend Thomas Kaut. Tom, tell us how to get your book. Okay, the book can be purchased from iUniverse. It can be purchased from Barnes & Noble. And it can be purchased on Amazon.com. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Okay, thank you, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.